he put before he put before them another parable the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field it is the smallest of all the seeds but when it is grown it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of the household who brings out of his treasure what is new, and what is old. The word of God for the world. As I was wrestling with this sermon the last few days, I realized that I thought it needed to be more of a conversation between us regarding what Jesus is saying about life in the kingdom of heaven. You know, recent New Testament scholars are calling or referring to the kingdom of heaven these days as God's empire as opposed to our human empires. So that in itself bears some thought and discussion. But before we begin talking, I am going to preach a little while, sorry. Um, <laughs> just wait till it's over, George. Oh. I want to tell you why I chose this sermon title, A Kaleidoscopic Kingdom. In order to follow my calling to become a pastor, I had to let go of some of my notions about inerrancy and the literal interpretation of Scripture. You get why, right? Who, do, who gets it? Why? Right, like 
women should keep silent in the church. I literally was sitting in a seminary class, in a seminary class in ethics. We were talking about women pastors. There were three of us in ministry preparation at seminary. In fact, I played on a softball team we called the Wimps, and it was women in ministry preparation at seminary. <laughs> and we cleaned up with everybody we played. Um, but anyway, I was sitting in this class, and there was a, a young man in the class, literally, who said this statement, I don't even think women should be allowed to sing solos in church. That was in 1981. Okay? So I had to let go of some things about the Bible and my interpretations of it that I had grown up with in order to say yes to God's call on my life. And I wrestled and thought and ran from that for a long, long time. And finally, you know, in fact, I even told a youth minister one time when he asked me what I was going to do when I finished seminary, I think I'm going to marry a preacher. <laughs> and he said, literally pulled a car off of the highway in San Antonio, Texas. And turned off the ignition and looked at me and said, Michelle, have you ever thought about being the minister? <laughs> so, I mean, that, it, that did a number on my theology. And so for many years, I've chosen to ask of the text I read and study more than the question, what does this literally mean? I usually ask a set of questions like, what might this have meant to those who first heard it? What might it mean now? What might it mean for Christianity at this time in history? What else might it mean? What do these possible meanings require of me and of the church? How does this interpretation square with Jesus' life and teaching? What must be let go of or reconsidered in order to embrace this truth to which I'm being led? In addition to this, I want always to sit and meditate in a calm, listening posture and to subject my ideas and knowings to those other than my own. Scholars of all kinds, communities of faith, wisdom voices I trust. That's why I love Providence. Because um, we give people opportunity to talk about the scripture. It's not just one-way communication. And finally, after all this, I tell myself, be humble. You only know and see in part. You might be wrong. There might be more to see and know than you think right now. This approach lends itself to a more imaginative view of the scriptures. And it also checks my biblical idolatry. It also calls on me to be very responsible and sometimes courageous in how I choose to interpret it in front of others. So, in 2002, when I decided to teach a unit on parables for my Friday morning Bible study, I wanted to help them understand this way of looking at Scripture as we studied the unique nature of parables. I wanted to help them delve more deeply into what the parables might mean if we suspend what we think we know about them and approach them with fresh eyes. After all, parables are a unique literary form. 
their use gives Jesus his reputation as an unparalleled teacher of non-conventional wisdom. In fact, many scholars believe that Jesus was the originator of this form, that he bases it on various other teaching methods and wisdom techniques in the cultures of the first century Middle East, such as the Hebrew mashal or proverb, which is akin to a mind puzzle, an enigma or a riddle. If Jesus didn't invent the parables, then he certainly perfected them. His parables can be long stories, like the parable of the sower and the seed we talked about a few weeks ago, complete with interpretation. Others are shorter, like the parable of the lost sheep, and can be interpreted in a variety of ways from a variety of viewpoints. Still others are like those we have in today's text. Short, pithy wisdom sayings, more akin to proverbs or koans, if you're familiar with that term. These come in the form of similes or short example stories, but their meaning is layered, multivalent, less accessible and straightforward than a, par than a proverb. Parables require imagination for understanding. They are subject to interpretation based on life experience and knowledge. And they can have more than one meaning. As Herb said in Free For All this week, the kingdom of God is so expansive you can look at it in many ways. This poses quite a challenge for the person who wants to study, teach, or preach on parables. Because Jesus uses them as his primary teaching tool to describe life in God's diverse empire. So, back to my teaching dilemma in 2002. That was just an aside. I was aware of this interpretive challenge as I prepared to teach this course on parables. I wanted to get across their ability to shed light in many ways and places. I wanted to highlight their multivalence. But I was stymied as to how to do this creatively. I couldn't find a good illustration that would awaken the kind of imaginative thinking I wanted to evoke. The first session was approaching, and I was about to give up on this and just get boring when I decided to go for a walk to clear my head. It was one of those afternoons, kind of late August, when the sun was dappling through the trees, making prisms on the road in front of me. You know, you've been there, right? You've seen that? Sometimes you can't even see the road very well. And so I let that sort of prismatic palette settle in as I walked. And completely out of the blue, a song came to my mind from my youth choir days. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you that. But it go, the, the, the chorus goes like this. Kaleidoscopic colors through a sun-soaked wood radiantly magnify the one who is good. Iridescent stars flashing in the sky proclaim a love that will never die. As I remembered those words, it hit me like a bolt out of the sky. Parables are like kaleidoscopes. You look in them and you see one image. You turn the cylinder and a new image appears. The light and movement combine to create a, a new image each time the kaleidoscope is turned while the colors and glass shards inside the kaleidoscope remain the same. That happens with parables too. When the light changes in our lives or something we counted on 
moods, or we have a new experience or insight, the parable's meaning can shift and deepen. When I realized that these stunning teaching tools of Jesus are meant to offer deeper and deeper wisdom and more and more insight as I listen and turn them over and over in their verbal kaleidoscope. I found the way in to my first lesson that semester. But more than that, this image has stuck with me over time. Imaging parables as kaleidoscopes, I experience what Matthew describes in verses in verse 52, the kaleidoscopic nature of the parable treasure trove that offers new and old together. And it's our task to let God's light shine through that cylinder in fresh ways as we walk the journey of faith with its twists and turns. So today, I want to see what new insights the parable kaleidoscope has to offer as we consider Jesus' short similes about life in God's kingdom. What Jesus calls us to in these few short verses about walking with him is important for us to consider carefully as we stand on the brink of a new era in the life of our church. So here's some, just some thoughts to get us started. First, Jesus uses ordinary life, everyday images accessible to common folk to make sure they know that God is everywhere in everything and in everyone. Second, mustard seeds were tiny and of little value. The huge shrubs they produced were actually weeds that could grow rapidly out of control. Think kudzu. <laughs> You've seen it swallow a house, right? Yeast was the fermented, living, breathing mixture that made the lifeless flour rise. But if over-fermented, could become deadly, and people could actually die from eating over-fermented bread in the first century. In fact, one commentator said that this yeast is not the same as the yeast used in our modern kitchens. In the culture of Scripture, leaven is almost universally understood as something evil or unclean. So neither mustard seeds nor yeast is a positive image in first century Palestine. So how does that change our understanding of these first two parables? We're supposed to be evil, unclean. That's the kingdom of God. Think about that. Third, Jesus' rapid-fire teaching technique here in chapter 13 assaults the senses and incites the imagination. Does he use it in the hopes that his hearers will catch God's wind blowing in old and new ways, calling them to live justly and walk humbly and to move away from the legalism of judgment, purity, and empty ritual that they have become accustomed to? The gospel writer has his own agenda as he strings these parables together, too. So what might he be trying to say to his community? Fourth, these parables all require some human action. The mustard seed has to be sown, right? The treasure has to be hidden. The pearl has to be found and everything sold to buy it. 
The leaven has to be placed in the dough at just the right time. The net has to be cast and pulled in. When we consider these parables, we must also consider the human responsibilities and responses they require. So with this context, let's talk about them. And to get us started, I want you to turn to the passage in Matthew, chapter 13, verse 31. And listen to these statements from our discussion in free-for-all this morning, uh, this past Tuesday morning. Let, let me let that prime the pump a little bit, okay? I have left out the names to protect the guilty. <laughs> All the things here are alive, growing, expandable, somebody said. The net is about reaping what we sow, but we have to decide if we're the net, the thrower, or the one caught. It's for sure we're not the angels, at least not yet. We like to be the ones who separate and judge who stays and who goes, but that's not the role of humans in this parable. The scribes had knowledge and power. They'd arrived, knew all the answers, but they're being told for, to look for old and new. The kingdom can't be safe, so we need to say, what if, a lot. We need to be open to the new, to calling, to what next. Does our religion open us or close us? Verse 45 and 46 are the key. When the pearl is found, all else falls into place. Many people get to the end of their lives and reflect that they ha might have missed the pearl. What's the pearl? Isn't that the challenge? That what's valuable can shift over time? So if we understand who we are and whose we are, doesn't that understanding open us up to imagination and freedom? Is that the pearl? The pearl is that we're beloved. That's just a portion of our Tuesday morning conversation. And hopefully it, that snippet quits your imagination. So now it's your turn. There are five images of the kingdom in this kaleidoscope. A mustard seed, yeast, a treasure found and hidden in a field, a pearl, and a net. So my first question to you is, which comparisons draw you in, intrigue, or call to you the most? Why? Now, when you don't just speak out, let Philip get to you so that we can get this on tape. It's real hard to, to use a tape if we can't. So Philip will come as quickly as possible. Here's the question. Which comparisons in this passage draw you in, intrigue you, call to you the most, and why? Well, I have to settle on the pearl. I think it takes the oyster years to make that pearl. I think it comes from all kind of friction, the sand, the whatevers, and only toward the end is it made into a pearl. Life is tough, but with God, we know the pearl stage will come. Hmm. I like the yeast because the yeast gets no glory, but it's really doing the heavy lifting, <laughs> literally and, <laughs> and figuratively. Pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Two right here. Well, Max said that for him it would be the net because it said that when they reeled it in, they kept the good and discarded the bad. 
Artie. I think all of them, and, and one of your statements in the beginning of the bulletin refer to this fact that in a kaleidoscope they're broken. They're broken pieces that are redeemed. And um, I can look at life and see that very clearly. Do you have any that you raise your hand? Okay. <laughs> Anybody else have a favorite? One that speaks to them? All right, I have a question. That's not allowed. No. <laughs> <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has to buy that field. Why not keep the treasure that he found? Good question. What do you think? That would be stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be stealing. Now, he's deceptive. He's deceptive in that he's not telling them about the treasure there, but he's going to buy it and buy the land so he can get it. Okay. The treasure isn't singular. Treasure isn't singular or plural, really. Okay. Glenda? I think in that case, um, it represents the desire that each of us have to have something be genuinely ours. The, the other comment I wanted to make was um, when you speak of this kaleidoscope effect, we have a little metal labyrinth that we keep on a coffee table and we had friends visiting not long ago and she picked it up and it has a little, looks like a little pencil that goes with it. And she was kind of fiddling with it and I said, Kathy, do you know what it is? It's a labyrinth. And I, I said, you can use it. And, and she looked puzzled. So I got her started. And we went on with conversation. And I quite forgot about her. She was working on this labyrinth. And all of a sudden, she picked her face up. And she said, Glenda, I never got lost. <laughs> and I said, well, Kathy, it's not a maze. It's a labyrinth. It's a spiritual journey. And I think that that's what these parables are about. It's about this journey, but we don't have to be lost. Right. They're guides. Thank you. Anybody else? One more. Bill. The mustard seed has always fascinated me because it is very, very small and insignificant. And I look at that as our faith and how it grows over time mm -hmm. and our understanding of heaven and our understanding of what it takes to get there is something that grow, grows big and helps us get there, but it starts off as almost just a glimmer. Mm. Anybody else want the last word? Ruth, do you want, did you raise your hand? Or were you waving? I mean, were you fanning? 
follow up on what he was saying about the mustard seed. The mustard seed, for me, has always been one of those things that says, no matter how small, how insignificant it is, it can still make a difference. There's still that, you know, no matter how tiny you, you feel, no matter how little or useless or whatever, um, it you can still make a difference. Yeah. Okay, we're going to click the kaleidoscope. We'll ask you another question. Which of these images, these parables, pose the biggest challenge and why? I'm wondering if it, it could be the yeast because of what you said in terms of it has to be at the perfect moment, otherwise you may die. <laughs> that is a challenge. Yeah, it's a big challenge. Yeah, there's some danger and risk involved in it. What else? For me, it's the net and the concept of throwing away the bad. Mm. I see it as all. Because for each individual description that he provides means that whatever is best for each can become the total kingdom of God. And that's very hard for us to accept that it doesn't matter whether we have the mustard seed or the pearl or the net or anything else. Each of us can be one of those. But not all. And the challenge is to make that community within it to realize the totality is the kingdom of God. To put an amen on that, look at the kaleidoscopic picture in the bulletin all of that individual pieces make the whole beautiful thing. Anybody else got one? Ann. It's the role of the angels here. In the Psalms, they're, they're encamping about us and they're, you know, protecting us. And here they're throwing some of us away. <laughs> That's a challenge for me to fly. think about that. I, I think the challenging one is the gentleman who sold everything to buy the field. I mean, that's really what we need to do. We need to give up everything that is not for God to be able to have God. And that's a challenge for all of us all the time. 
I was telling the group on Tuesday that we used to have some children's books of the parables that our, we, we raised our children on. And I, I can't even remember. I, I, in fact, I meant to look it up, and I didn't. I can't even remember the author's name, but he was, he was also a wonderful artist. And so he did this series of parables, but one of them was, was the pearl. And, you know, they sold, they sold everything to buy the pearl, too. And so this merchant is looking high and low, you know, for the pearl, and finally he finds it. And then the very last scene, you see him, and, and the only thing he's got left is his red polka-dotted underwear, and he's just dancing with the pearl. And it's this wonderful image. You know, he sold, up, he sold down to the bare bones, but, but he got his pearl. And, um, yes, that's a really hard, hard teaching when you really let, let it sink in. Okay, here's the, here's the big collective question. What do you think Jesus is trying to tell his hearers about the kingdom of heaven using these various comparisons? What, what's the big picture here? George Faye's already moved us in that direction a little bit. Yeah, Brenda. I think most of us um, have come to this point in our lives from a religious background. And we've been given a lot of stuff, um, a lot of tradition, um, and things that are good and things that are bad. And it's time to sell it all and look at the pearl. I think Elizabeth summed it up with all the broken pieces being put together and making a beautiful whole. Anybody else? Phil? It's worth it. It's worth it. Makes me cry. Okay, one more question. Because now we're going to telescope it a little bit, you know, like a telescopic lens. What are the takeaways for Providence right now? What are the takeaways for our church right now? It's one thing to speak in global terms. It's another thing to say, which one calls us? Which one moves us? Which, what do we need to hear collectively from them? To me, that's a good one because we are each a piece, and yet we make this beautiful whole called Providence. We have room for more. We're not closed, but we are this beautiful, non-judgmental, grace-filled gym. Still? Stole your thunder? He stole my thunder. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think it's the same thing. I mean, the thing that attracted us to Providence is because exactly what Elizabeth said. This is is a a place of many colors and a place of many thoughts, and everything and everyone is valued. 
I think it takes us back to your statement earlier, the kingdom is providence. But then we have to ask, therefore I will, what? What am I going to do in, to be to enrich that? Yeah, the therefore I will. And that brings me back to Murtis's statement about the pearl and encountering lots of hard things mm -hmm. to make it beautiful. Because I think we have experienced hard things and we're going to continue experiencing hard things, um, especially like now and in the next few months probably. And to keep our eye on the kingdom and that everything is for the kingdom is really important. Anybody want a final word? It's your turn to preach now. Come on. Okay, let me wrap it up. In his commentary on this passage in Feasting on the Word, Theodore, Theodore Wardlaw, it's not easy to say, once, let alone three times, recalls watching Desmond Tutu on public television back in the early 80s when apartheid is still very strong and there is no outward sign it will end soon, if ever. In the interview, Tutu and his wry way says, when the white people arrived in South Africa, we had the land and they had the Bible. They said, let us pray. When we opened our eyes, they had the land and we had the Bible. And we got the better deal. <laughs> and Wardlaw comments, the kingdom of heaven, like the mustard seed, invades the cultivated soil of our certainties and our boundaries and creates out of it all something new, the better of the deal. And hidden within what we think we see so clearly, he writes, it is subversive and grows up in unexpected ways until what we thought we knew is transformed and redeemed by our surprising, invasive God. So as we think about the future, as we seek to grow deeper spiritually, as we seek to attune ourselves to the image of God's Spirit within and among us, as we look for what God is doing and join it, these parables can give us guidance. We must recognize that God's empire is different from the human empires in which we put our trust. So we must decide what pearl we are seeking. And we may need to look in unexpected places for it, knowing that these places might call us to be courageous to look foolish, or to subvert the status quo. In these parables, we see the nature of discipleship, Seek, seeking the sacred among the ordinary, finding a way to have courage to embrace the new, discerning what is worthy of all that we have, allowing ourselves to grow and change, realizing that it is God's work to winnow and judge the catch, not ours. 
Our work is to sow seeds and leaven dough or to be the seeds and the leaven if need be. To cast nets and remember that we too are among the caught. To give all we have in trusting abandon. To discern how best to hold and old and new together in a constant dance of embracing and letting go. The kingdom of heaven is hidden, small, surprising, unboundaried, free, and open to all. God does the transforming work of growing, rising, and catching. We just have to keep seeking the pearl and selling out to God's way so that by channeling God's imaginative presence in and through the ordinary lives we lead, we enliven the dough in which we're placed. God's empire is ultimately about cultivating a way of life so compelling that we make others scratch their heads and say, what? Or, I want that, whatever it takes. And in the midst of it all, as we face the unknown future, as we face our brokenness, as we come to grips with the fact that we're just one little shard in the kaleidoscope, we can claim with the Apostle Paul that nothing can separate us from God's love. Kaleidoscopic colors through a sun-soaked wood radiantly magnify the one who is good. Iridescent stars flashing in the sky proclaim a love that will never die. What about it, Providence? Will you become set in your ways? Or will you keep dreaming, keep imagining, Keep giving, keep casting, keep sowing, keep seeking, keep baking, keep deciding to risk it all for that one pearl. God alive inside of you. Growing like a mustard seed, giving life to that which looks lifeless, and transforming you into that which you are called and created to be. Will you trust this surprising, invasive God whose love will not let you go?